From the classroom to the emergency room, OR and beyond, you're joining Trauma ICU Rounds with your host, Dr. Dennis Kim. I'd like to welcome you back to Trauma ICU Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Dennis Kim. Earlier this week, I had the opportunity to sit down with Dr. Zaf Kasim and Scott Weingart to discuss the role and impact of podcasting on medical education and how this medium, together with social media, can be incorporated into one's academic or educational portfolio to support advancement up the academic ladder. Thanks again to EAST, or the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma, and the CareerCast podcast for inviting us onto the show. And be sure to check out the conversation, that's episode number 58, wherever you download your podcasts or listen directly on the EAST website at east.org. A couple days ago, the 8th annual 2021 Pan-Pacific Virtual Trauma Congress was kicked off and I wanted to give a big shout out to my colleagues and friends in South Korea. Thank you so much for the invitation to speak and to share with you how COVID-19 impacted the U.S. healthcare system and delivery of trauma care. I am really excited and look forward to meeting in person in South Korea in the not-too-distant future. Big shout out also goes to NVSIS and Vikram, both of whom uploaded a couple of really supportive and kind reviews about the show on Apple Podcasts. NVSIS writes, Trauma ICU Rounds is one of my favorite podcasts. Listening to Dr. Kim's podcast is my go-to and keeps me motivated to learn more. I really appreciate those kind words. And if you'd like to support the show and help increase our visibility, please do go to Apple Podcasts, search for Trauma ICU Rounds, and be sure to subscribe, rate, and write a few supportive comments about the show. We'll be sure to acknowledge your kind comments in future rounds. As I mentioned in last week's episode, I I recently participated in a pro-con debate on the use of pre-hospital pelvic binders in patients with suspected pelvic fractures. And so I thought it would be an opportune time to review the literature on this topic and discuss the rationale for placing pelvic binders in patients with suspected or confirmed pelvic fractures. If you haven't yet, be sure to check out Season 1, Episode 24, in which Dr. Clay Cawthorn Berlew from Denver Health joined us to discuss management of hemodynamically unstable pelvic fractures. And by the end of this episode, you should be able to, number one, discuss the initial assessment and management of patients with suspected hemodynamically unstable pelvic fractures. Of course, this is the same approach that we would apply to any unstable trauma patient, and given that it's the start of a new academic year, I thought it would be a good idea to quickly review some basic principles. Number two, you should be familiar with the Young-Burgess classification of pelvic ring fractures. Number three, describe the indications, technique, and considerations for properly placing and managing a pelvic binder. And finally, number four, you should be able to discuss the hemostatic adjuncts that should be considered in the management of patients with hemodynamically unstable pelvic fractures. So when it comes to the assessment and management of potentially hemodynamically unstable pelvic fractures, It's important to bear a few key points in mind. Number one, it takes a lot of force to cause a pelvic ring fracture. 
As such, the vast majority of patients will have concomitant or associated injuries, many of which will be severe, particularly to the head, chest, abdomen, and lower extremities. As such, it's really critical to identify sites of major bleeding such that appropriate hemorrhage control interventions can be implemented alongside of damage control resuscitation. Remember, the mortality rate for patients with severe pelvic fractures varies from 10% to upwards of 50%, and the vast majority of deaths that occur within the first 24 hours are due to, no surprise, hemorrhage and associated injuries. Second key point, pelvic fractures are notoriously difficult to diagnose in the absence of radiographs due to the fact that the physical exam is really insensitive for identifying patients with these injuries. For this reason, a variety of organizations and trauma systems have developed anatomic and physiologic criteria for when a binder should be placed, both in the pre-hospital as well as hospital environments. More on that later with my take or bias on some of these proposed criteria for placing a binder. Finally, at present, the best early and most effective means of obtaining initial hemorrhage control for patients with hemodynamically unstable pelvic fractures is to place a pelvic binder. One of the key points here is that it really doesn't matter if it's a bed sheet, SAM, teapot, or other commercially available device, provided that the binder is placed properly, that is centered over the greater trochanters, there really is no difference in effectiveness of stabilization and pelvic reduction across modalities. Pro tip, make sure to internally rotate the lower extremities such that the toes are pointing towards the ceiling or sky and bind the ankles as well. Now, regarding our first objective, the initial assessment and management of all trauma patients always should involve a quick huddle with the trauma resuscitation team, and time permitting, team members should introduce themselves, their roles, and plans for contingencies. For example, the need for blood or a potential chest tube based on the data provided in the trauma alert. When your EMS or pre-hospital personnel arrive, be sure to give them at least 45 seconds of quiet to get a handoff, and this is going to be followed by our primary survey, which is supplemented by adjuncts, both diagnostic and therapeutic, and finally, a reassessment and reevaluation of our patient, and most importantly, their response to any interventions that we've provided them. Regarding the primary survey, the major objective of this rapid exam is to identify the presence of any potentially life-threatening injuries, and as far as circulation is concerned, this usually manifests as hemorrhagic shock, which we classify on the basis of the American College of Surgeons classification system. With regards to the system, it's not at all necessary to memorize the estimated blood loss in CCs or percent EBL for each class of shock, of which there are four. The key to this classification system, in my mind, which we'll have a link to in the show notes, is that the estimated depth or severity of hemorrhagic shock should be guided by a combination of readily available data in the form of vital signs, physical exam findings, and the base deficit. Unfortunately, Trauma patients don't read the books or participate in ATLS, and as such, we really need to have a high index of suspicion for the presence of shock, which oftentimes may be occult or compensated. 
Remember, the number one, two, and three causes of shock and trauma patients is bleeding, bleeding, and bleeding. Personally, the presence of encephalopathy or altered mental status, an elevated shock index, which is the ratio of your heart rate to systolic blood pressure, or a narrowed pulse pressure, typically less than 30 millimeters of mercury, are all very concerning, as is, of course, frank hypotension. Irrespective of the class of shock, always ensure good, reliable IV access, obtain temporary bleeding control of obvious external bleeding, for example, placing a tourniquet with a bleeding extremity wound, and for patients in class 3 or 4 hemorrhage, you'll want to activate the Institutional Massive Transfusion Protocol, or MTP, Transfuse a couple of units of whole blood if you've got it while waiting for said MTP, administer 2 grams of IVTXA, send a tag, and reassess. By the time the ABCDEs are done, you should have a sense as to where the bleeding is coming from. And remember the five cavities or sources of major blood loss. Chest, abdomen, pelvis, which for all intents and purposes is equivalent to saying the retroperitoneum, long bones, and external or street. While arterial or pulsatile bleeding from a lacerated brachial artery or bilateral deformed femur fractures may be readily apparent on clinical exam, massive hemorrhage into the chest, abdomen, or pelvis are oftentimes much more occult or hidden from the senses. And it's for this reason that once we move into our adjuncts to the primary survey, particularly among patients with blunt polytrauma, we must and should perform a chest x-ray, pelvic x-ray, and fast, the latter oftentimes being completed even before we get our handoff from our EMS personnel. In terms of our second objective, there are a couple of well-accepted classification systems for pelvic ring fractures, the most well-known and widely used of which is the Young-Burgess classification. Pelvic fractures in this schema are classified on the basis of force type, severity, and direction, as well as injury instability. The three mechanisms include, number one, anterior-posterior compression, also known as APC fractures, number two, lateral compression, or LC fractures, and three, vertical shear injuries. APC and LC fractures are further divided into one, two, or three from least to most severe. A classic example of an APC injury includes a motorcyclist who's involved in a head-on collision as may occur when a car pulls out into traffic and the motorcyclist ends up crashing into the side or the rear of the vehicle. The resultant anterior to posterior application of force or straddle injury that occurs as the pelvis strikes the gas tank results in a disruption of either the anterior or posterior SI ligamentous complex or both, and this is the mechanism responsible for that classic open book or APC3 fracture. An LC pelvic fracture is classically seen in the setting of a pedestrian who is struck by an automobile whereby the injured victim steps out into traffic and the major vector of force is applied in a lateral manner. These injuries may also be seen following an MVC rollover 
or ground-level fall in susceptible individuals and also happens to be the most common type of pelvic fracture. Finally, vertical shear injuries result from posterior and superiorly directed forces as may be seen when falling from a height on an outstretched extremity, and these tend to be the most severe and unstable with an increased potential for abdominal visceral injuries. So if a physical exam is insensitive for the presence of an unstable pelvic fracture, does that mean we should wait for a pelvic x-ray prior to placing a binder? And the answer to that is obviously no. If you have a hemodynamically unstable patient and the mechanism together with vitals and exam suggests the presence of an unstable pelvic fracture, I would strongly recommend that you bind the patient's pelvis. In doing so, you accomplish a couple of things. First, you may reduce the pelvic volume, and this has been demonstrated to be the case in multiple cadaveric studies, particularly in patients with open book pelvic fractures, and this may aid in tamponade and minimize further blood loss. Second, even if the pelvis isn't open or there isn't a significant diastasis of the pubic symphysis, Binding may help to stabilize the fractures, thereby decreasing motion and the potential for further injury while also decreasing pain. Binders may be placed in the pre-hospital setting, but I will say that upon review of the literature and different organizations' criteria for placing a pelvic binder in this setting, it seems that some of them may be a little too liberal for my liking at least. For example, in the UK, a GCS less than 13 or a heart rate greater than 100 have been identified as lone criterion for placing a binder in the pre-hospital setting. Now, although simple to apply, I do wonder about the added time required to find, open, and place a binder. And to be forthright, I'm sure that that time is minimal. But add to that the fact that many binders may be misplaced, usually too high, In fact, this may occur in up to 50% of patients in one study, and I I do wonder about the utility of overly applying these in the pre-hospital setting. Personally, I feel that in the face of a prolonged pre-hospital transport time and hemodynamic instability, placing a binder may be beneficial with minimal to no downsides. Now, what are the downsides of placing a pelvic binder either in the pre-hospital or hospital setting? And the answer is there really are not that many downsides. Among patients with LC fractures, for example, a wing-swept pelvis or a pelvic fracture that is rotationally unstable yet vertically stable, concerns sometimes do get raised regarding the potential for worsening the pelvic fracture or causing further injury in the form of visceral or vascular trauma due to overcorrection or reduction of the pelvic ring injury. This is really more of a theoretical concern which has never been borne out in any clinical studies. And so again, if a patient is hemodynamically unstable with a suspected pelvic fracture, make sure to bind those. As was stated earlier, many of these binders may be incorrectly placed, with the majority being placed too high. Therefore, it's important to identify and palpate the greater trochanters and ensure that the bedsheet or binder is centered over the trochs. 
a word of caution. If on the primary survey or physical exam, an unstable pelvic fracture or open book pelvic fracture is identified, it's important to ensure that the pelvis is not repeatedly opened and closed, as this may further exacerbate bleeding. One person palpates the pelvis. Typically, I like to push in on the iliac crest versus outwards. And if there's obvious instability, don't let go. Hold that in place while you communicate to the team there's an unstable pelvic fracture and get the binder placed. Now, another issue that comes up is, well, what if we need to get access to the groin? For example, we need to place a cordis in the femoral vein, or maybe we're in a center where we perform reboa or resuscitative endovascular balloon occlusion of the aorta, and we want to get access to the common femoral artery. Do not take off the binder. For most commercial binders, they can simply be cut and fashioned to allow access to the groin vessels. The other place this may happen is IR, where the interventionalists want to get access to the common femoral artery. And so try to avoid, or actually not even try, avoid completely taking down the binder. Just cut a hole in it to get access to the groin vessels. Another point that comes up regarding binder application is that similar to placing a tourniquet, it's better not to have intervening clothes or other materials between the skin and the binder. And a final consideration that does arise, and this typically happens in the ICU, revolves around the timing or duration of binder application, specifically How long should it be left on as there may be some concerns regarding buttock or skin ischemia and necrosis? Oftentimes, we'll leave these binders on for upwards of 24 hours and then maybe at that time together with the rest of the trauma team and orthopedics team, let the skin quote unquote breathe. However, even after 24 hours, we've really never encountered any issues regarding skin ischemia or wound complications attributable to the binder itself. Regarding objective four or the hemostatic adjuncts that should be considered in the management of patients with hemodynamically unstable pelvic fractures, I would once again refer you to season one, episode 24, in which Dr. Clay Berlou does a fantastic job outlining the multidisciplinary institutional protocol for managing these injuries that's evolved over the last three decades at Denver Health. But quickly, once you've identified a patient with an unstable pelvic fracture and the pelvic binder has been placed, the question really becomes, have they responded or not to your attempts at initial resuscitation? And this usually involves the administration of two units of whole blood. If your patient is a responder, then at this point, it would be completely reasonable to proceed to a pan-CT to identify associated injuries and to assess the severity of pelvic injury while looking for the presence or absence of contrast extravasation or a blush, which might benefit from angioembolization. If your patient is a transient or non-responder to initial attempts at resuscitation, well, that's your golden ticket. This patient needs to be up in the operating room and where available ideally a hybrid operating room. Now, you may have noticed I did not bring up the technique of reboa or resuscitative endovascular balloon occlusion of the aorta. And to be honest, uh, as someone who's placed multiple reboas over the years, my personal bias these days is that this really does delay transport of patients to the OR, which in my humble opinion is the safest place in the hospital to be if you are sick and bleeding. Now, 
That's not to say that we shouldn't be getting femoral artery access in the ER, as I think this is very reasonable and then can be used to swap out for the seven French sheath through which a balloon may be inserted and inflated in zone three to decrease pelvic inflow. However, I think that any and all attempts at Reboa should be performed in the operating room, kind of similar to how our vascular surgeons operate when they have a ruptured triple A, because you'll be there, you can prep and drape in case you need to intervene surgically. Among patients who remain hemodynamically unstable, either in place of or as an adjunct to Reboa, preperitoneal packing should be performed provided that there's no indication to perform an X-lap or exploratory laparotomy. This technique has been previously well described and is based on the principle that the vast majority of hemorrhage in the setting of pelvic fractures is venous in origin, and in fact, only 15% of unstable pelvic fractures are due to an arterial source. Implicated vessels here include the superior gluteal and iliolumbar arteries in cases of a disrupted posterior SI ligamentous complex, and among patients with disruption of the anterior bony pelvis, injury to the internal pudundal, obturator, or corona mortis arteries are commonly encountered. In addition to pelvic binding, preperitoneal packing plus or minus Reboa placement, External fixator or C-clamp placement may also be beneficial in decreasing pelvic volume. But to be honest with you, as of late, oftentimes our orthopedic surgery colleagues will suggest just leaving the binder in place until the following day or once the patient's been adequately resuscitated in the ICU, at which point they'll undertake either temporary or definitive fixation of the pelvis. In rare instances, we will ligate bilateral hypogastric arteries or perform bilateral internal iliac artery ligation. However, this is usually only done in cases where we're already performing an X-lap for some other indication and happen to note a large or expanding zone 3 pelvic hematoma with ongoing hemodynamic instability. And the concern here is that there may be injury to one of the major pelvic vessels in zone 3, oftentimes the iliac vein. But the whole idea behind this procedure is to decrease inflow, and it may be aided by clamping the abdominal aorta below the level of the renal arteries, and then placing either temporary silastic loops or permanently ligating bilateral internal iliac arteries using a combination of O-silk ties plus or minus large clips. In terms of take-home points, pelvic binder placement should be considered early in blunt polytrauma patients with evidence of hemodynamic instability, and this is particularly apropos in cases of prolonged pre-hospital transport time and a high clinical index of suspicion for the presence of an unstable pelvic fracture. Also remember, Pelvic binding is only one and typically the first of many interventions that are involved in the successful implementation of a multidisciplinary pelvic fracture protocol. Identification of other potential sources of bleeding, together with damage control resuscitation, are critical to ensure optimal patient outcomes. Key adjuncts to pelvic binder placement and damage control resuscitation include preperitoneal packing, angioembolization, external fixation, and the role of Reboa remains to be defined. 
Once again, I'd like to thank you for joining us on Rounds. If you like what you're hearing or if you feel that we are contributing in some small way to your learning and education, please consider supporting the show by leaving us a five-star rating and positive comment on Apple Podcasts or wherever you download your shows. Also, be sure to interact with me and the content. You can contact us at traumaicurounds at gmail.com and let us know what you'd like to hear about. We're also on social media at Twitter, the Gram, and Facebook. The handle is at traumaicurounds. Until next time, stay safe, keep reading, take care of yourselves and one another.